My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to Let Nothing Move You. I'm your host, Christian Ashley, and if you cannot tell by my voice again, I am sick again, and that is why I'm doing this so late. I am not happy. <laughs> with any of that it's just not been fun dealing with this off and on there's days when i'm perfectly well and then there's others where it's just like i have the plague that it it is what it is so apologies for my voice once again um but that's just how it is now on the positive side of things i did enjoy my trip to disney with my family i had a really good time there even though i was also kind of dealing with illness too and had no energy some days but at the end of the day it's disney how can you not be happy at the happiest place on earth? I had a blast. I'm looking forward to doing it again whenever we head down that way. <clears throat> so, uh, as far as news goes, uh, I believe if I have my dates correct, this weekend for my seminary life that is done with Brandon Knight, my friend, uh, he and I and Pastor Will Rose, also of Systematic Ecology, uh, did an episode for his podcast as he is going through a Greek month on Clash of the Titans, the 1981 film. And that's, I love that movie so much. It, it's a goofy, fun time, but there's also plenty of aspects we get, we can get to into scripture that we talk about there. We talk about Acts 17 and, you know, Paul speaking to the Romans about their faith and stuff like that, uh, while also talking about a ridiculously dumb movie that I love. So that's good. And then I believe that once again, if I have my dates correct, the week after that, I will be on my seminary life again to discuss 300. <laughs> and we get to some really surprising, uh, what's what I'm looking for here, conversations about, uh, you know, what is true masculinity? Uh, how can we love other people? How do we deal with historical inaccuracies in film? We're also talking about another dumb movie that I really love. It's a blast. So check out My Seminary Life. Brandon does great work there. Uh, he, like me, it was he, he was in seminary and is now just graduated. <clears throat> so uh, man knows his stuff. He's a great guy to talk to. I love being with him and discussing things like that. So that's My Seminary Life once again. So we will be going today for letting the move you into Romans 6 and 7. So let's see how the good old voice handles this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For... If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in, re in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Some of Paul's earliest critics were among the Jews, who discussed the idea of salvation saving someone for all time as an excuse that he made up so that he could continue to sin and others could sin as much as they wanted without repercussions because they were free from the threat of sin. This is a very surface-level reading of the joy that comes from receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul rightly argues against this idea as it demeans the sacrifice of Jesus to act in a way counter to the moral law he created. If Christians were to act like this, it would destroy the world's perception of who God is and what he truly desires from us. And let me tell you, Christianity has enough of an image problem without Christians making it worse for us. Now, guys, please, for the love of God, don't go into ideas like this and say, well, I'm saved. I can do whatever the hell I want. But no, you've missed the entire point of why we're saved. It's to get away from that life. It's to no longer desire in our heart of hearts to go after that sin anymore, to, to pursue God. We have been saved by Jesus from what we rightfully deserve. Death awaits all who sin, but God cannot abide in the presence of sin, and only the spiritual baptism that Jesus offered us and covers those of us who say yes to him can protect us from God's righteous wrath. You know, and acting as if we'd never made that decision to repent and turn to him makes a mockery of the gospel and ruins the presentation of truth. Just think about it. If you're acting the exact same way you were before you came to him, what's the difference? You just have some new trendy religion in your mind. It'd be the same way if someone got into New Age stuff. It'd be the same way if someone became a Hindu and they remained the way they were. Like, there's something wrong with maintaining who you were when Christ enters your life. And we see here, the old self that Paul speaks of here is who we used to be before the uh, before they died on the cross with Jesus. And we are now new creations in Christ thanks to his loving sacrifice. That old you is dead, and they're better off dead. But this new you that was created by saying yes to Jesus, that seeks after love, that seeks after truth, seeks after his perfect moral law, that's a beautiful new creation. And if we believe that Christ died for us, and that we are now made new in God's sight, we cannot ever wish to go back to who we used to be because you and I, we are supposed to live in truth. And this doesn't mean that we're never going to sin again or that we'll never fail in our mission to serve God because we are still humans living in a corrupted and sin-filled world. But what it does mean is that we now have the power to resist and fight back in a way that we never could before because of the new self that exists in our hearts minds and souls that seeks after God and what pleases him rather than what pleases us. Sin has no dominion over Christians anymore. At best, it can only temporarily redirect us from the narrow path that leads to God. But there is nothing that can stop us from realizing what we've done and then repenting as we go back to our glorious mission to serve him. If the law still existed as it did for the Jews, and the laws made by men were the standard for righteousness, then this wouldn't be good enough, because the law would condemn us. 
However, since we are under grace, which extends to all who realize their brokenness and repent and cannot ever be obtained by our own merits, we are free and should have hearts to seek the will of God above our selfish ambitions. All right, and we're going to finish off chapter 6 with verses 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul continues his diatribe against sinning after being freed from the constraints of the law because it shows our hearts are either ones that never change because we falsely believe we came to Christ or shows that for the moment we have temporarily neglected the truth for our own designs over the world excuse me, for our designs over the world in our pride. To turn back to sin, who was our former master, makes us fools. Because sin can never love us and only wishes us harm while distracting us with the pleasures of this world. But by being obedient to God as our master, we show him as the true master and lover of those who are saved, in which, paradoxically, we find true freedom. Because God's freedom comes from following the moral laws that prevent us from causing evil to others and ourselves. It is far better to be a slave of righteousness than it ever was to be enslaved by sin or the law. Paul even acknowledges the paradox of it all because he is limited by human words to express something that our minds can't fully comprehend because it is so antithetical to the human thought process to be in a loving relationship with God because then we're not in charge. And we think we're in charge, even though we're slaves to sin. And look, this is just an important part of our inadequacies when it comes to understanding God and his mighty works. But we cannot let it lead us astray simply because we cannot fully understand it. I've never been able to grasp and fully comprehend the idea of eternity. Look, I have an idea of what eternity is, but as I have never experienced it, I cannot bring my mind to the point of truly knowing it like I know such things as 2 plus 2 equals 4, or the laws of gravity, or the fact that the last Jedi is the abomination of desolation. <laughs> okay, maybe not that last part, but you see my point. It is okay to feel frustrated when thinking about higher concepts like the Trinity, or the metaphysics of Jesus' sacrifice, or what have you, when it comes to attempting to interpret Scripture. But it is not okay to let it overwhelm you and keep you distracted from the good works God desires you to perform. Take your time with these concepts. Realize our mind can only go so far to understand them. Accept that, and then go and make disciples. We also see here 
Paul again returns to the idea of the wages of sin being death. This is an absolute, no way around it. This is an I am the way to truth and a life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. No workarounds, no loopholes, no nothing. This is an absolute. Sin leads to death as it has no part of the goodness and life of God. Therefore, that is why God must punish it and those who live under it because they have earned their wages. But because God loves us, he gave what we cannot earn as an opportunity for those to say yes, excuse me, who say yes, to get what they don't deserve and thank God for that. Otherwise, we would have earned our evil wages and been stuck in eternal torment. And praise God for him, because we all know that's where we'd end up if we're thinking rationally. We know we don't deserve heaven. We know everything we've done. That's the point. We don't deserve his free gift. And it was freely given anyways. Romans 7, 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Sorry. Oh, hearing myself is so bad. I'm finally becoming a man after, you know, 32 years on this planet. <laughs> Go back to scripture. Using the illustration of marriage, Paul shows how the Mosaic law, and for those of you who don't know what that means, Mosaic means in reference to Moses. Uh, uh, the Mosaic law applies only to the living. If a woman were to remarry while her husband was still alive, she would be guilty of the sin of adultery. However, according to the Mosaic law, if she were to lose her husband, then there would be no sin if she chose to remarry as her first husband is no more. In that same way, the Mosaic law no longer applies to us because our old self was put to death on the cross with Jesus' sacrifice, and we are now, in a sense, married to a new suitor who loves us more than the law ever could. Because of this fact, we are free from who we used to be, and we should act like it. 7 through 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be the death of me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. After looking through all this, you know, a very, there's a very natural thought process to have after hearing every bit of this information, and it's to wonder if the law is somehow inherently evil. Because attempting to follow it leads to death, and not following it leads to death. Well, 
what are my choices here? Failure and failure. That's like I said, it's a perfectly logical conclusion to make without delving further into its purpose. Paul, however, brings us back to the actual point of the law, which was to show us what sin really is. Otherwise, we wouldn't have known it. And this enhances our understanding of God and why he came in the form of Jesus to sacrifice himself on our behalf. Yet, at that same time, the knowledge that came from understanding the law gave sin the opportunity to enhance our understanding of how to sin better and in different ways than we previously thought possible. But the law itself is righteous because it directs us towards truth. Paul makes good points here. I would not know coveting is bad inherently without the law because, well, you're not really hurting anybody. I mean, I really want what they have. But like, no one gets murdered. I mean, eventually it can lead to it, but you're not going to blame coveting for it. You're going to blame, oh, I just couldn't control myself. But the law brings up do not covet. So I know my very act of being jealous and envious towards someone else because what they have that I don't makes it sinful. That's why the law is there, to help our puny human brains understand the moral facets of God. 13 through 25. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Oh boy, cannot flip that well. <laughs> in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, and not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The law that was especially meant for good, did not bring death. Sin brought death to begin with and then lied to us and made us think our knowledge of the law makes us destined to death. It is not the law's fault that sin corrupts truth and puts doubt and evil thoughts in our mind based on our understanding of the law. Were we to remain as Adam and Eve were in the garden, the law would have remained, but because of their nature, at, before they had sinned, they would have been fine because they were keeping it inherently. For us, it doesn't work that way. We're born under sin. We're born under that affliction. So the law, while it is still good in and of itself, <clears throat> does not bring death. It brings condemnation for things we've already done. And I'm getting to that point again where I did last time. I was like, oh, no. What did I just say? Oh, man, my mind is so addled. So here's hoping I said something in truth and not all that. But to move forward, 
it is not the law's fault that sin corrupts truth and puts doubts and evil thoughts in our mind based on our understanding of the law. Sin does its best to make the law a scapegoat in order to deflect blame from itself. That old idea of, oh, well, I mean, well, the law says it's bad, but it's not because I wanted to do it. No, no, it's because because the law said it's bad and therefore I did it and it's it's so terrible. But I, I never would have done it if I hadn't have known that it was bad. It's like, no, there are many things in this world. There's some things we would have been ignorant of, as Paul brings up. But there are other things we know who we are. We know in our pride what we would have done. And then sin brings up like, oh, well, hey, man, it's not your fault. Like, if the law hadn't have said this, you would have been okay. Like, you would never have done this. It's like, we know that's a lie. Well, we believe it anyway because it makes ourselves look good. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us because by its very nature, sin is evil. <laughs> I mean, you can't get much past that. Sin is evil and wishes to spread evil in any way that it can, especially if it can twist the truth for its own untrue narrative. That's the worst aspect of sin. That's the worst aspect of Satan and his demons is that they will use truth to screw with us and lead us astray by twisting it. Instead, oh, oh, did God really say that you would die if you ate the fruit? Oh, did, did God really say that you, know, you shouldn't lie to your friend? Because like, really, you're protecting him by saying that lie. Did God really say that, you know, you should love your neighbor? I mean, you know what that neighbor's done. Like, I mean, surely God didn't really care about them. No, you cannot let that twisting of truth affect how we look at the world for our own benefit. That's not righteous. That's not good. We also see here in these verses, the struggle of humans who have been saved from what we rightfully deserve, yet don't always live as if that happened. We forget the great sacrifice that was done on our behalf and go back to our old master because it gives us temporary pleasure. Yet, at that same time, we know that what we are doing is wrong and we hate ourselves for giving into it, knowing that there will always be repercussions for sinning. I hate this about myself. I do it every single day. It's like, I know this is wrong. But I want it anyways. And I go, no, I should have done that. I need, I need to go to him. And I pray and I repent. Then another day, it's something else. Maybe it's the same one. Over and over. doesn't matter. Like, it is impossible for us to go a day without sinning unless we're in a coma. And you better not be hoping you don't have a coma dream. <laughs> and we can talk about the metaphysics of how that works in sin later on. But it's impossible. Well, I am conscious because of who I used to be wanting to take control again. It is possible for me to resist that. Once again, having a temptation is not sin. Giving into it is. And we see this paradoxical desire within ourselves is going to be a battle that will never, it's going to never end while we are alive. And it can be extremely easy to give in and just give up. Just because the fight is hard, but we should do no such thing. We must fight against our old selves and turn to God for help in these trials, while also knowing that when we do screw up, which we will, there's that downer Christian part again, very sorry, but it's truth, which we will, there is always forgiveness and love waiting for us on the other side. 
we just have to accept it. That's part of growing up and maturing as a Christian is knowing I desire God. I truly desire him, but I'm still human. And I still have aspects of myself that want to be like the old self of who I used to be. That wants to give in to my baser desires, to live in pride, to say that I'm God and he's not. But I also have a desire within me that says, I did that. I just sinned. God, forgive me. I don't want to be like that person anymore. Please take me back. And he will every single time, knowing we're going to screw up again. That's good news, people. Because if I treated anyone else like I treat God, I wouldn't want to be friends with them. I wouldn't want them to be friends with me. I'm a terrible person. But he brings me back every single time and says, look, Christian, my little favorite screw up here. I know you. I love you. I forgive you. Come back knowing and not holding it over me that I'm going to sin against him again. That's good news. Now, I don't know what your particular sins are. I just know that they exist because you're human. Okay. Because you and I are humans. But I do know that when I struggle with mine, it most likely stems from me thinking that I deserve better, or when I feel inadequate and weak, so then I go seek pleasure elsewhere, despite knowing it's wrong. And then I know in my heart of hearts that what I am seeking after is evil, but I still want it, so I go after it. I am to blame for giving in to my own sins. People can talk me into it, but I have to say yes to it. Adam and Eve had all the opportunity in the world to say no to Satan, in the form of the serpent at the garden. Satan is not to blame for them making their own choice. He is to blame for bringing it up, but they still made the choice. It's my fault when I choose to sin. I have to say yes to it. I also have to take personal responsibility for what I've done and then bring it to Jesus in repentance. This war won't be won until either Jesus comes back or we die and spend eternity with him. But don't lose heart just because it's impossible for us to win. It was always impossible for us alone to win, But if we turn to him, our ultimate victory is assured. No matter how many intentional choices we make along the way, that veer us off course. You are worth his sacrifice, and there is nothing that can take that away from you if you are his. That's still good news, people. No matter how many times I screw up, no matter how many times I insult him to his face, walk away and do my own thing, he's still waiting there because I'm his. No matter how many times I say I'm not, Because he honors that choice I made to say yes. He honors that choice. And he'll honor yours too if you come to him. Finally here to end this off, Paul ends the segment of his letter by by reminding us of that good news. Jesus will deliver us from ourselves. Praise be to God. Our flesh may desire to serve sin again, but our new selves desire to worship God and follow his laws, so we will win in the end. It doesn't always feel like that. I often feel like I'm the worst of the worst. It's not even close to being true. But I do know at the end of the day, there's an ultimate victory lying ahead that all those past things won't matter anymore because I'm his. Thank you all for listening today. Thank you again for struggling to listen to my voice. As it sounds right now, I'm very appreciative of what everyone's done. Uh, If you have a moment of time, please just leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice. Like, uh, I really appreciate you doing that. Like, once again, it doesn't have to be anything flowery. If you want to write something, like, heck, just tell me uh, what your favorite verse of scripture is. Tell me what you had for for breakfast that day. I I don't care. I will care about what you have to say. I'll put it that way. But whatever feels good to you. As long as it's a five-star review, it's all right. 
If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching for the name M.C. Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries podcasting network. Contact me at letnothingmoveyoupodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Noel for the editing that he does and for the music he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.